Amen. Thank you, Lord. <clears throat> well, if you would turn to Genesis chapter 2, we're going to do something a little different today, uh, and I'll explain in a minute why we've decided to look at Genesis chapter 2 this morning. As Dan mentioned in his prayer, our culture is uh, crazy in so many ways in light of all that we're going through and in light of various issues. And one of the things that has become increasingly apparent is that as Christians, as individuals, and as churches, we have to take a stand more and more these days regarding biblical sexual morality. And there are a lot of reasons for that, um, but it's become clear that um, things are changing, especially in our country, on these issues, and the pressure for us to conform is great. And Romans 12, 2 tells us that we're not to be conformed to this world, but we're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And so as Christians... As we're presented with different views on sexual morality, sexual identity, and things like that, we have to ask ourselves, how are we to respond? What are we to think? What does God say about it? Lest we be easily conformed to the world and just simply reflect what the world says rather than what God actually tells us in his word. And so that's what we want to talk about this morning is to try to give a basic a summary of the biblical position on sexual morality. And again, there's so much that we could say that I'm not going to be able to touch on everything. Uh, if you want to look at my sermon brief after the fact, you can get much more detail. I'm just going to try to touch on some things to remind us of some things. And the encouragement, the basic encouragement is for us to embrace what God says is true and to show compassion without compromise. And so I'm going to say that over and over again today, that our application as a church, as Christians, is to embrace the truth of what God says is true in this area and to show compassion without compromise. And I believe that would be uh, what God would have us do to please him and to truly love people. Because the big question is, how do we love people in light of these issues? Well, if we were to ask the question, where are we today in our world regarding sexual issues? Uh, One illustration of where we are today is what happened just this last week on January 12th when the Pope, head of the Roman Catholic Church, claims to be the head of all true Christians, claims to be the representative of Christ on earth. He basically has said very clearly what his position on these things is is at the moment by demoting an archbishop who said that God cannot bless same-sex unions because God cannot bless sin. So the um, archbishop said this, and the pope demoted him for it. And so that's where we are, even among people who claim to be Christians. We have this being conformed to the world rather than being transformed by the renewing of our minds. The main reason why I'm preaching on this today is to um, express solidarity with our Christian brothers in Canada. Because as of January 
um, 8th, I think it is, um, just this year, a law has gone into effect in Canada that bans conversion therapy. And conversion therapy has to do with helping people uh, who have gotten into uh, the homosexual lifestyle or a transgender lifestyle, helping them to convert back to heterosexual lifestyles and things like that. And the Canadian government has passed a law saying that it is a criminal act to promote any kind of program that helps people go back to the heterosexual position uh, or to actually administer encouragement or help to uh, people who want to convert back to male after having left that or convert, convert back to female after having left that or go back to a heterosexual uh, position on sexual practice after having gone into uh, LGBTQ type practices and things like that. And so now you can get up to two years in jail for advertising those kinds of programs and you can get up to five years in jail for actually trying to help people um, convert back to um, what used to be a more um, normal position on these issues. Uh, there was a pastor uh, who wrote a letter and he said about this, a Canadian pastor, uh, talking about this bill uh, in Canada, C4, that he says, the definition in this bill is intentionally broad and it can clearly be used against any preacher or elder who either speaks against homosexuality, transgenderism, or who counsel, counsels a person to obey Christ and abandon their homosexual, transgender actions and lifestyle. This means as of January 8th, 2022, it will be against the law to preach, teach, or counsel regarding God's design for marriage and sexuality. And so the Canadian pastors agreed that they would all preach on uh, God's design for marriage and sexuality on this Sunday. And they asked American pastors to do the same thing. And so that's why we're doing this today because we want to stand with our brothers in Canada, and obviously, most importantly, we want to stand on the basis of what God says in his word. And so the Canadian pastors realize that the door has been opened to persecute Christians for proclaiming Christianity, because Christianity calls people out of those lifestyles, always. There's not, you can't proclaim Christianity and not call people out of those lifestyles. And hopefully as we go through it this morning, you will see why that's the case. Well, there are two major issues involved in all of this. One is the issue of gender identity, um, which is the idea of defining yourself by how you feel about yourself. And that's, you, that's the terminology used by people who actually do that. I'm not making that up. And then there's the issue of sexual practice, which is also connected to identity in various ways, defining ourselves by what we desire in that area. So what I'd like to do, is, as concisely as I can, I'd like for us to look at Genesis chapter 2 and think about the issue of gender identity and the issue of sexual practice 
using Genesis 2 as the basis for what we're going to say. We'll obviously bring in some other scriptures as well as much as we can. But I just want to lay out some basics, just remind us of some basics so that we can think about how to love people in light of these kinds of issues. And what I'd like to do is just begin uh, with verses 1 through 3 in Genesis chapter 2, where it says, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their hosts. By the seventh day God completed his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. So the first thing is, we see the creation of all things being uh, summed up here. And yet I want to point back to what it says in the beginning of Genesis in chapter 1, because when it talks about God creating the heavens and the earth and everything being completed, it's important that we realize that that includes a discussion of gender. And so if you look at verses 26 and following of Genesis chapter 1, we see it saying, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. I'm not even sure all of us could define what it means to say gender. Um, But basically the idea of gender is the idea of a subspecies of human that used to be tied exclusively, exclusively to physical characteristics but is now tied to psychological characteristics. And so in our time, uh, if you were to ask the question, how many genders are there? Uh, back in 2014, uh, there would be people who would argue as many as 58 different genders. In fact, Facebook in 2014 went from allowing people to identify as male or female or just not say to giving them a choice of 58 different genders that they could pick from. Then, now, in last year, actually, in 2021, they've upped it to 72 different genders or types of genders that people can pick If you think about that, that's pretty overwhelming, that anyone would have to sit down and decide what gender they are after all the, uh, you know, in light of all those choices, especially if you're a child of five, six, seven, eight years old, and they're going to let you go through this list and pick what gender you are. 
The reason why we've come to this place is because gender is no longer based on biology, physical characteristics. It's based on psychology or in terms of how we feel about ourselves. It's not a physical thing. They call it a social construct. And uh, they would argue that there's more than just two. God says he created male and female in Genesis chapter 1. They would say that's way too narrow, way too limited in terms of gender. But they would also say that it's changeable, that you might feel this one way, uh, feel like this one day or one at one time, but you can change how you feel and therefore you can change your gender. And it doesn't have to relate at all to the issue of your sexual activity or your sexual attraction. It's all about how you perceive yourself. And so, as I said, you used to define your gender based on your physical characteristics. Now you can say, well, I see myself as being different than what I am physically, and that's what a transgender person um, is, or that's how they see themselves. Uh, a non-binary person would say, I don't see myself as being male or female. I'm something different. Binary, I'm not one of the two uh, traditional uh, perspectives. Gender fluid means my gender changes. It's fluid. It, it can move from one to another. And interestingly enough, there's also something called gender void. Gender void is someone who doesn't feel like they have a gender and they feel a sense of loss, which is very, very interesting to me. And I think there's a good reason that they feel a sense of loss. But there are all kinds of genders. Areogender means you have a type of gender that is influenced by your individual surroundings. Or affectogender means that you have a gender that's based on uh, your mood swings. Or there's biogender. Um, This is for the outdoor type. It's a type of gender that feels closely related to nature. There is ex-degender, which is a type of gender that exists only when an individual intentionally puts forth an effort to think about it. Now, I use all those illustrations of the different kinds of genders that they're talking about to basically illustrate this statement by someone who supports all of these things. There's a, a doctor... Uh, that works at a center for sexual wellness in Minnesota, who said it may be helpful to remember in short that biological sex is physical while gender is feeling. So that's not my definition. That's their definition. Gender is not physical. It's feeling. It's how you feel about yourself. That's why if you feel close to nature, you can call yourself bio gender. Um, That's why all these things um, make sense. You can understand why there's so many different genders because there's so many different ways people can feel and how they can experience life, and they're trying to put a label on it apart from God and apart from his word. And so you take God out of the picture, you take his word out of the picture, and we're grasping for some kind of identity. We're trying to figure out who we are, and what we are. And um, the Bible in Genesis, excuse me, Deuteronomy 22, it's just one verse that just kind of opens the door, the door to the discussion of is all of this um, a moral issue? And Deuteronomy 22, 5, 
God makes this comment. He says, a woman shall not wear man's clothing, nor shall a man put on a woman's clothing. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. Now, is it just an issue of clothing? I don't think it's just an issue of clothing. It's an issue of male and female. It's an issue of God's design. It's an issue of how gender confusion causes issues and problems. And so we have to ask ourselves, in light of the fact that um, there is a lot of gender confusion in our day and time, how are we to respond? And again, the principle that I want us to embrace is compassion without compromise. On the one hand, there's the ditch of saying something like, there's no such thing as gender dysphoria or gender confusion. That's a ditch. That's not a right position to take to to say, I don't believe anybody really ever has any gender confusion. I don't believe anybody has what they call gender dysphoria. The reality is there are people that experience those things. And we should not deny that they experience those things. But the other ditch is the the ditch that says there there are more than two genders, male and female. Therefore, if people experience this, there must be more than two genders, more than just male and female. That's another ditch to get in. And so the, the compassion response says, I understand you're going through this, something very difficult. What people have defined as gender dysphoria or gender um, confusion. And we want to love people who are experiencing that in one shape or another without compromising on what God says is the reality, that there are only two genders. Just because I might experience something doesn't change reality, doesn't change what God says is true. And it's important that we think about this. Rosaria Butterfield um, was a lesbian activist and a professor, and she got saved. God saved her. And she's now a pastor's wife. And she teaches and talks about how to love people in light of that lifestyle. And that she encourages us in the church to uh, recognize that there is such a thing as gender dysphoria. And we need to not pretend that people aren't tempted along those lines. We need to be, she would encourage us all to be honest with the things we're tempted with. The, the way we feel, uh, the attractions that we might have um, without seeking to justify them, but actually seeking help in light of what God says. And so who knows, uh, in a body even our size, uh, who might be struggling with these kinds of things? And we, as the people of God, are not to condemn people who struggle with those things. We're to show compassion Because we're all fallen, we are all warped in various ways, we all have inappropriate desires and inappropriate thoughts and and, uh, we're all inclined in ways that are sinful. And so uh, this is just one aspect of how we uh, see our own fallenness. And so we're to have compassion, knowing that we all are weak and struggle in various ways. And we want to encourage each other that there is help. And his name is Jesus. And he came to forgive people who struggle in those areas. 
and to empower them to live differently. He came for pardon and he came for power. And that's the good news that we have as Christians. And so we affirm that uh, two genders based on biology, male and female, is the design of creation and necessary for the fulfillment of our divine purpose, which is to image God, that we attack the image of God in man when we attack male and female. The second thing that I want us to see is actually found in verses 4 through 7, if you look in Genesis chapter 2, where it says, This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. So the second thing is, obviously God created all things, but God created man. And God created man first in terms of males. And what we need to see in this is that the Bible, not only in this passage, but uh, in other passages, highlights the fact that there is a responsibility to maleness. Um, There are those who will talk about the fact that recently in our country, as uh, 2014, I think, is when it began to really change in the military, is that they began adjusting um, pull-up requirements in the Marines, Marines so that they could include women in combat. And so... A lot of women could not do the normal amount of pull-ups required uh, to be soldiers in combat, and so they began changing the standard so that women could be in combat. And people began to argue that um, maybe there's a, a reason why we shouldn't put women in combat. Not that there aren't any roles in the military that women can play, but in terms of combat, maybe there's a good reason Uh, not to do that. And obviously, as Christians, we would argue that we do not believe that women should be in in combat. Why is that? Well, one of the reasons why is because it's the responsibility of males, of men, to be the protectors. It is not the responsibility of women to protect men. It's the responsibility of men to protect women. And that is tied to Maleness is tied to servant leadership. It's tied to how God has designed things. And so someone has said uh, there are more factors than valor going into fitting a person for combat. So it isn't the issue of whether or not women can be brave or women can um, fight. Uh, That's not the issue. The issue, as this person puts it, is that true manhood inclines a man to fight to protect women. It does not incline him to arm women for the front line of combat to defend him. That's the main issue, not pull-ups. The main issue is how God has designed manhood and womanhood to honor each other and to create a cultural choreography where men and women flourish. And so what we see in Genesis chapter 2 is God made man first. And in other parts of the Bible, we see that that is actually a significant thing. He didn't make man and woman at the same time. 
He didn't make woman first. He made man first. And Paul talks about that. You don't have to turn here, but I'll read it for you. In 1 Corinthians 11, you can read that later if you'd like to. Paul says in verse 3, But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. So he says, man is the head of woman in terms of principle, in terms of role in society. And he goes on in verse 7 to explain that a little more. He says, for a man ought to not have his head covered. He's talking about head coverings and things like that. I won't get into that now. He says, a man ought not to have his head covered since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. The woman is the glory of man. For in For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. And so he's obviously indicating that there's a difference between men and women, just like Amal was talking about earlier. Um, But in 1 Timothy, Paul talks about it a little more when he says in verse 12, chapter 2, verse 12, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created... Adam, who was first created, so he's applying the first creation of Adam, and then Eve was created. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Now, there's a lot of stuff in there, but I'm simply making the point that Paul takes what we find in Genesis chapter 2 and says there are implications for how God did what he did in Genesis chapter 2 that apply to how we relate as male and female, and that God created men first that they might provide a certain kind of leadership for women, a provision for women, a protection for women. In our day and time, people react against that because they believe that is simply a way of uh, justifying the oppression of women and male dominance over women. And so you may hear different people talk about rejecting patriarchy. Um, That's all about that idea that society is set up in such a way that men are in charge, and they're in charge so that they can um, basically um, impose their will on women and use women for whatever purposes that they want to use them for. It's also interesting that they would argue that people who are in favor of what they consider this male dominance uh, tie it to physical characteristics or biological differences between men and women, and they tie it to the family. So if you ever wonder why there's an attack on uh, making a distinction between people's biology and their gender, and if you ever wonder why there's such an attack on the family and the man or the father and husband be the head of the home, it's because that has to take place. Because in their minds, it's all connected. That male dominance and physical characteristics and the husband or father being the head of the home is all part of this system that's meant to oppress and dominate women. Well, what are the ditches here? Well, one of the ditches is saying, oh, there's no issue with how men treat women, either individually or on society's level. The reality is, yes, there is a lot of abuse. There is a lot of uh, mistreatment of women, not only in our country, but around the world and historically. And so 
you don't get in the ditch of saying, oh, there's no issue here. Yes, there's an issue. And that's why we need the gospel, because the gospel helps to liberate people uh, from um, the mistreatment of others in all kinds of situations. So that's one ditch. We don't deny that there's, there's ever a problem between male and females and how they relate. But on the other hand, to say that men and women are, are equal in every way and should share all possible roles and responsibilities is not true. That's the other ditch, is to say we're all equal. We all should be able to do exactly the same thing. God says that's not true, I, and I didn't make you to do everything um, the same or to be considered the same. It's not my design is what God would say. And so part of the issue is, as someone has described it, it's like uh, in the Navy, this man used this as an illustration, that if you've got a lieutenant and you've got an ensign, which is an officer that ranks right below uh, the lieutenant, if you've got those two people and you look at them and you say, you know, I think the ensign, who's actually lower in rank, is smarter, uh, better looking, uh, is a better leader, is uh, seems to be so much better than the lieutenant in every way, uh, they should be equal or he should be above him. And the reality is that's not the way it works. It doesn't matter how great this lower-ranking official may be, and they may be equal in terms of intelligence and looks and, and all kinds of things, and yet there is a ranking that is required for the proper function of the military. Well, the reality is that's the way God has set it up in terms of men and women in the home, in the church, and in other uh, situations is that God has designed that in the home that the man be the leader. He's also designed it in the church that the man be the leader. And it's not inherently evil or wrong for that to take place. The problem is when through sin the leader doesn't lead well or when um, through sin the, the person underneath the leader doesn't follow well. The issue is sin. It's not the design of how things have been set up. And so um, we have to affirm the fact that men, biological males, have a role. It's a leadership role. It's a providing role. It's a protecting role. And that responsibility is tied to their maleness uh, given to them by God. And that doesn't, doesn't matter whether you're married or not. I mean, if you're in a, you're a, in a group of people and and uh, another group of people attacks you, you shouldn't, because you're single, you didn't say, I think the women ought to protect me. Uh, this, it's your maleness that should rise up and say, regardless of my marital status, uh, I'm going to seek to be a protector and a provider as, a, as is appropriate in any type of situation. It's just how God has designed us to, uh, to operate. And there's all kinds of... Uh, applications of that, but I'm just trying to lay and remind us of some basics here. Well, the third thing is, and this is one of the biggest points, just in terms of how it's often argued in our society, is the issue of why did God set it up this way? Um, Because there are a lot of women who would say, I'm not so sure God's design is the best design, because I see a lot of abuse in that. Well, in verse 8, Through 14, it says, The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. 
Out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It flows around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. The bedellum and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gion. It flows around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. It flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. I want to simply make the point that when God made man, he did not put him in a desert. He did not put him in a waste place. He did not put him in a trash pile. He did not put him in a torture chamber. He put him in paradise. Now, that may seem like a small point, but it's a huge point. Because we ask the question, does God care if we are truly happy? And the answer is yes. God does care if we're truly happy. And so his design and our happiness go together. They're not at odds. They're not competing for one another. But that's one of the big arguments against God's design is it stands in the way of my true happiness. As I've mentioned before many times, Blaise Pascal said, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. And he goes on to say, regardless of what you're doing, whether you're going to war or whatever you're doing, you're pursuing your happiness to one degree or or another. And the question is, why is that true? Why are we always pursuing what is good for us? It's because God has made us that way. God has made us to pursue our happiness. That's not a sinful thing. It's only sinful when we put our hope for happiness in the wrong thing. He's made us to pursue our happiness in him. And so that's the whole issue. The issue isn't that I'm pursuing my happiness. It's whether or not I've rejected the fountain of living waters. And I'm trying to get water out of something that cannot give me any water. A broken cistern which is what all these different kinds of sexual identities or gender identities or sexual practices are. They're broken cisterns that can hold no true water. Temporary pleasure, yes. Uh, The illusion um, that I'm free when I'm in slavery, yes. But it cannot truly make us happy in the way that God has designed us to. So God made a paradise for mankind to live in because God does care about our happiness. Psalm 1611 says, You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. So we affirm the fact that God made male and female, men and women, as a necessary feature of enjoying paradise. Okay? To enjoying paradise the life that God designed for us to have in this world, what people often call today human flourishing, um, male and female. That's how God designed it to work. And so uh, one of the things that we wonder about is, but, you know, how can there be paradise if I'm being limited? Well, from the very beginning, God created paradise, but he created paradise with a boundary. If you look at verses 15 through 17, it says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely 
die. So God says, from any tree you, can, you may eat except one. What is that? It's a limitation. There's only one limitation, only one tree. It wasn't the flip side. You can eat from one tree, but not any, in any of the others. No, God said, just one tree I don't want you to eat from. There was one limitation. And so in paradise, there were limitations. In our day and time, though, we ask the question, can we, true, can we be truly happy with limits on what we do? That is exactly where we are as a society. And again, it reflects something I've mentioned before, the idea of Joe Theismann, who was a football player, became an announcer. He tried to justify uh, his affair that he had during his second marriage, and he tried to justify it to his his wife at that time by saying, God wants Joe Theismann to be happy. Now, is there truth in that? Yes, there is truth in that. That's why it makes it so powerfully deceptive. The truth is God God does want Joe Theismann to be happy, just like he wants you to be happy and me to be happy. But that doesn't mean there's no limit on what we can do. That doesn't mean that God has designed us to find our happiness regardless of what we do. It's to find our happiness as we trust him and obey his word. And that's exactly what God was telling Adam and Eve. I've put you in paradise that you might be truly happy in your fellowship with me and in all that I've created. But you won't find that if you try to get outside of the boundaries that I've established. And in our culture, there are all kinds of sexual practices that are being affirmed in in so many ways. And they will say, our culture will say there's many legitimate sexual practices. Uh, In fact, they can't even define all of them. They can't even put a number on how many there might be. And they don't connect sexual practice to romance or marriage or or anything like that. And they have all kinds of different um, definitions of what you might say is your sexual desire or your sexual attraction. Um, Allosexual is someone who's uh, attracted to any kind and all kinds of uh, situations. There's autosexual who's attracted to herself. They're attracted uh, to themselves. Um, Obviously, bisexual is attracted to both males and females. And there's all kinds of uh, different kinds of sexual attraction that they'll talk about. They'll even talk about sapiosexual, where you're sexual, you're, you're attracted to people of a certain intelligence. So there's all kinds of ways of defining sexual desire and those kinds of things, which are based on people's experience, right? I'm attracted to the opposite sex. I'm, I'm attracted to the same sex. I'm attracted to smart people, whatever it may be. Are those real experiences? I have no doubt that those are real experiences in some way, shape, or form. And so we have to recognize that that's the world in which we live, and that's where people are at different times. Um, As I put in your notes, someone has said, when it comes to sexuality, there is no one-size-fits-all approach, which explains why there is already such a long list of terms to describe sexual orientation, with more popping up every day. For someone who is searching for the perfect word to describe their sexual desires, this could take them a step closer to finding sexual liberation. 
So the idea is, if I can just define who I am based on my sexual desire or who I am based on my gender identity, I will be free. The Bible says, no, if you embrace what God says is true about your identity and what is true about your sexuality, then you'll be really free. But that's what people are being taught and encouraged to believe. And so what are the ditches to avoid? Uh, The principle of compassion without compromise. One ditch is all this talk about different kinds of sexual attraction is a lie. Or, quote, sexual orientation is a lie. What is a lie is how we think about those things and how we apply those things. There are people who would definitely say, this is the way I'm attracted. This is my inclination. These are the desires that I have. And so compassion says, I understand that that's what you're experiencing. And you don't have to deny people's experience or how they um, describe what they're experiencing. The issue is how to think about that and and what to do with that. Um, It's like, again, Rosaria Butterfield would say that she doesn't deny the fact that people have different kinds of desire or attraction, but she denies the category of sexual orientation. And why she denies that is she says the category of sexual orientation says something about your personhood, not your practice or your desires. It says something about who you are as a person. And that's why it's so powerful in our country because people have identified these kinds of desires or behaviors with their personhood. To deny that is to deny them. But the reality is God tells us what's true about who we are. We are people made in the image of God. We're not defined by our, by our sexual attraction or our desires. We're defined by who has created us and why he's created us. And so she opposes the idea of collapsing your identity into your struggle. She says, no, we we don't affirm sexual orientation as uh, a way of identifying people, but we do acknowledge that people have these desires, have these attractions. The question is what to do about that. Another way to put it is people have these temptations, even in the church. And so how are we to help people in light of these sexual temptations? So we affirm that living outside of divine boundaries regarding gender and sexuality destroys the relationship between God and mankind, the relationship between men and women, and the enjoyment of the happiness that God intended. But obviously our hope is in Christ, and our hope is in the gospel for that to be um, remedied. Well, moving right along, I want to highlight that there's also the, the reality in this passage of the creation of woman. If you look at verses 18 and following, it says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. 
the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. God created man and God created woman and he created both of them with responsibilities. That there's a maleness that has responsibilities. There's a femaleness that has responsibilities as well based on God's design and intent. So did God create women with a special role? Well, for years we would say, obviously, like having babies. And yet, in 2008, uh, the world proclaimed the world's first pregnant man. And then in 2010, uh, the world proclaimed the world's second pregnant man. But in both cases, these men were trans men who were born female. And they identified as males, but they were still able to have babies. But the world says they're pregnant men. Even though uh, there are no men having babies that don't have the female parts to have babies. It doesn't work that way. It's obvious that God created women to do something that men was never intended to do. And that's a good thing. It's not a wrong thing. It's not a bad thing. And so women were created to be nurturers, to be life givers. And one of the arguments against women in battle, going back to that whole issue, is um, someone has connected that with the idea of, um, there's a verse in, um, what is it? Is it Exodus? I think it's in Exodus, where it talks about, do not boil a kid or a goat in its mother's milk. And you may have read that and thought, what in the world is that talking about? Well, one man says, uh, one way to understand the principle there is, God doesn't intend for us to take what is meant for nourishment and life and to use it as an instrument of death. A mother's milk is meant for nourishment and life. So you don't use it to kill something. And so as a result, uh, people would say, you don't uh, take a woman who was made for nourishment in life and put her into combat and make her a killing instrument. So it's just another way of thinking about how has God designed men and women and done it differently. So God created a woman as a helper for man. In fact, that's what it says in Genesis chapter 2, that God created uh, women to be helpers for man. That's why in 1 Corinthians 11, it says... Um, for indeed man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake as a helper of sorts. Now, the word for helper there is the same word that's used in other places for God being our helper. So it's not the helper that just sweeps up after you because you don't want to do it. It's the kind of helper that you cannot live without. It's the kind of helper that you desperately need. God is the kind of helper that we desperately need, and he created a woman that men desperately need. And that's why Paul could say, um, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. So the fact that man and women were created by God and they have different roles and responsibilities doesn't mean that one is inferior to the other. doesn't mean one... um, um, 
version of humanity gets to trample on and oppress and dominate the other version of humanity. But the reality is that um, women, biological females, have a role and responsibility that is tied to their femaleness. You can't transfer the responsibility of having children to men. There are roles and responsibilities that are meant for women and roles and responsibilities that are meant for men. And yet in Christ, it says in Galatians, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free man, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, which means God loves men and women equally in Christ. Uh, We are on an equal level spiritually, but we have different roles in this world. Well, let me get to the la- this last point very quickly. The last part of the uh, chapter, the last two verses say, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And this last point is the idea that um, marriage and sex were God's idea. God is the one who created marriage. God is the one one who created our ability to have sexual relationships. And so God isn't against either one. God's in favor of it in its proper place and in the proper exercise of that. Um, It's just like um, the idea of many, many years ago when cars were just coming out, there was one broken down on the road. You might remember the story. The guy couldn't fix his car. A guy stops by, gets it running in just a few minutes. The guy says, how in the world did you fix that car? And he said, I'm Henry Ford. I designed this car. I know how to fix it. You apply that to marriage and sex. God is the one who created it. He designed it. He knows how to fix it. When we wander off, path. He knows exactly what needs to be done to make it work the way that it was designed to work, which is truly for our happiness, truly for our pleasure in all the ways that, excuse me, God intended it. But the idea that I want to highlight is if we reject these things, if we reject the male-female gender distinctions, if we reject sex inside of marriage, we reject God. We have to understand that, that it's a rejection of God. And the reason why our society is doing these things is because it's fundamentally rejected God. And these things are just the fruit of our rejection of God. Now, why do I say that? In 1 Thessalonians 4, it says in verse 3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Hear what he said at the end? Those who reject this standard of sexual purity as God defines it, those who reject that reject God. That's what's happened in our society, and we have to recognize that. What 
So sex is God's idea, but it's limited by God's design. It's legislated by God's love and wisdom. It's blessed or cursed according to God's judgment, but it's redeemed through God's Son. And that's why I just want to conclude with what it says in 1 Corinthians, which is the hopeful part of all of this. As we wrap up, in 1 Corinthians 6, it says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. In John chapter 8, there's a story of a woman caught in adultery that was brought to Jesus. And he says that those among you without sin cast the first stone. Everybody walks away. Jesus asked the woman, where are your accusers? And she says, there are none. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. That is compassion without compromise. He wasn't saying it didn't matter how she lived, but he showed compassion to her. That's how we're to show compassion as well. And ultimately, the compassion we're to show is to say, God says this is wrong. God says this can actually be something that condemns you to hell. But God forgives, and God has made a way of forgiveness in his son Jesus. And God can give you the power to live differently. And it's in his son. So it's the good news of Jesus that we are to proclaim compassionately, but without compromise. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to love people. And these are very, very difficult issues that we're talking about, and we've just touched briefly on them. I just skimmed the surface of these issues, and I don't want to in any way imply that they're easy issues or uncomplicated issues and that they don't involve people, real people, with real hurts and real struggles and and real um, anxieties and fears and Uh, guilt and condemnation and desire for freedom and desire for happiness. So we want to be compassionate. Help us not to be condemning, but to be truly compassionate. And yet at the same time, help us to not compromise with what your word says, knowing that we do people no service by simply affirming lies, by simply affirming things that will actually lead to destruction rather than human flourishing and will will not lead to a right relationship with you and the enjoyment of all that you've promised us in Christ. So help us to be compassionate. Help us to be bold and not compromising, but to be bold in sharing the good news of Jesus, that there is forgiveness and that there is power to be different, that there can be conversion and that the real true conversion therapy is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, please help us as your people to love and to be compassionate and to take the stand we need to take wisely, patiently, and in love. And Father, for those here who struggle in any way with identity issues, gender issues, sexual issues, 
I pray that they would not despair. I pray that they would not embrace what the world says, but they would seek to embrace what your word says and that you grant them grace to look to you for the help they need. And may we support them and love them and help them as they seek to trust you and to live in the way that you've called us to live imperfectly and yet truly. Please help us all, Father. Please have mercy on us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.